This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Dahlia Lithwick writes about courts and the law for Slate. She also hosts the podcast Amicus. The Supreme Court's leaked opinion overturning Roe versus Wade could be extremely consequential, not only because of the impact it could have on people's lives, but also because of its impact on precedent, on how the public perceives the court, and on the court's customs and practices. Dolly is one of the country's leading legal commentators. We talked to her about all of these issues and more. To hear more past episodes or sign up for our newsletter, which will deliver our best of directly to your inbox, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Wednesday. Our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, led this interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. So Dahlia, about a month ago, feels like a year ago, there was a leaked draft opinion on potentially the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So today we want to get into a little bit of the history of law surrounding abortion. And to really start this out, I was wondering if you could set the table for us and help us understand what the legal status of abortion was in the country prior to Roe, all the way back 50 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how far back you want to go in some sense. And one of the things Justice Alito in the Dobbs draft spends a lot of time talking about, you know, what what the law was in different jurisdictions at different times historically, what the common law was. I think that I would say the general accepted history is that for a very, very long time under both the British and the American common law regime, you were allowed to terminate a pregnancy up to what was known as quickening. And quickening was this completely ambiguous, almost impossible to pin down amorphous idea about when you could feel the fetus stirring in the womb. And that was the kind of point of demarcation. And so obviously that changed from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that was the rule. And then in the late 19th century, medicine got really professionalized. And some of this is kind of racist and sexist, but doctors didn't like the idea of at the time it was largely women and it was largely African-American women who were doing terminations. And so just as sort of an attempt to professionalize healthcare, it there, there was a real kind of clamping down on who could perform abortions and why. And that was the period of time where you really started to see different states start to restrict it in, in, in much more kind of draconian ways. By 1973, when you get to Roe, you really had a patchwork. So you had some jurisdictions where it was very easy to get abortions, some jurisdictions where it was impossible. And you kind of had throughout the country a culture of, you know, it was understood in 1970 that if you need to get an abortion in, say, Florida, you would try to get yourself up to New York. So I think that's essentially the law of the land. Maybe the other thing I would say is that pre-Row, even in jurisdictions that criminalized abortion, it was usually the physician that was on the hook. It was almost never the pregnant person. 
And one of the things that's really interesting, although we'll get into it, is that there's now we're looking at a kind of different regime where jurisdictions that are going to make abortion illegal will not just target the the provider, but also the mother. But I think that it's probably fair to say that in 1973, when Roe becomes the law of the land, it really almost entirely depended where you were, what state you were in, whether abortion was lawful or not. Another thing that we want to look at to help us understand the context of the Roe v. Wade decision is about how the actual case got selected and made its way up to the Supreme Court. Because we know how so often legal activists, they try to find the right case that will help them best present their arguments and really try to set standard and law that they're hoping to achieve. So can you tell us a little bit about the actual plaintiffs in the Roe case itself, how they became the case that established this landmark ruling? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question because it raises the counterfactual that everybody likes to talk about now, which is, I think the short version of that is, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been allowed to do this the way she wanted to do it, uh, when she was litigating cases in the early 70s, Roe would have been rooted in much firmer ground, right? And so I think that, you know, the short the short answer is that this was one of a number of cases that made its way to the Supreme Court. In this particular case that came out of Texas, it wasn't litigated, um, I think, as you're hinting at, as an equal protection case. It wasn't litigated as fundamentally, if women are not free to terminate their pregnancies, they cannot control their economic lives. They cannot control whether they get equal pay and how they get paid. That was essentially, I think, the move that Ruth Bader Ginsburg wanted to make. Instead, by the time Roe gets to the court, um, and this is the thing that I think Justice Ginsburg, you know, everybody likes to cite Justice Ginsburg deploring how Roe got rooted in a different part of the Constitution, not in the equality arguments, but in the privacy and autonomy arguments. And that's because when Roe comes up to the court, it is building on cases that came before it that essentially were not rooted in those equal protection arguments. They were rooted in privacy. And the case that really kind of forms the scaffolding of Roe is Griswold versus Connecticut. And that is a decision that allowed uh, married couples to use contraception within the confines of their marriage. And that it was also rooted in the cases like famously Loving versus Virginia, which was the case that struck down the anti-miscegenation laws that said that Black people and white people could not get married. And all the way back, if you look at that line of cases that goes all the way back to the 14th Amendment, to what's called substantive due process, And that is the notion in the 14th Amendment that newly freed slaves needed one essential right that was not in the Bill of Rights, and that was the ability to construct their families the way they wanted to. And I think it's kind of been lost in the history. We really saw this at the Ketanji Brown-Jackson hearings when Senator John Cornyn and Senator Marsha Blackburn were saying, you know, what is this fundamental due process, this ethereal, meaningless light, right, that's made out of vapors and unicorns? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. They never said unicorns, but they really did, I think, imply that 
the Roe v. Wade privacy right was rooted in nothing. And the truth is, it's actually rooted in this long, long line of substantive due process or unenumerated rights cases that said that in order to have former slaves be free, women could not be raped by their masters. Families could not be separated. Children could not be sold as chattel. Those are all the things that happen to disturb family privacy if you were a slave. So if you go back and you read, and I just think this is really essential lost history, and I would commend Peggy Cooper Davis as a scholar who did a lot of writing about this actually in the 90s. But what she essentially surfaced was that the debates at the at the framing of the 14th Amendment really were focused on this idea that you have to be able to have a zone of privacy where you pick your spouse, you live with who you want to live with, you raise your children as you see fit. And so that line of cases really becomes cases that say you get to choose whether your kid has religious education, you get to choose whether you are sterilized. It ends up in Loving versus Virginia, you get to pick and marry the person of your choosing and ends up in Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, you can use birth control and determine your reproductive future. So all of that sounds like it's just kind of amorphous feelings ball. It's really not. It's really quite, quite deeply felt reconstruction amendment thinking about what freedom means. And so I, I guess that's a very technical doctrinal way of saying that we like to play this game now of saying Roe v. Wade was rooted in the wrong place. If it had just been rooted in equality, it would be uh, safer today. And I think that the best answer to that is, you know, A, I'm not sure it would have been safer, but I think more urgently it was rooted in something really, really fundamental about what family privacy and autonomy meant. It wasn't just tagged to nothing. And that if you say that in 1973, the Supreme Court was prepared to say that women, you know, would, would face discrimination if they couldn't end a pregnancy, it's really important to understand even pregnancy discrimination wasn't considered discrimination at the time. So the Supreme Court was working with really bad doctrine in some sense, but also really, really passionately defendable doctrine in another. And when Justice Blackman crafted Roe, he tried really, really hard to lash it to what we now think of, or we can sort of dismiss as not meaningful freedom. But in his view and his telling of the, the case, there wasn't an equal protection case to be made. One last thing I'll say about this, and I'm sorry I'm so in the weeds, but I think it's really important to understand. By the time in 1992, the court decides Casey, and I know we'll talk about Casey in a minute. When they decide Casey, they're now starting to import that equality language that women can't possibly function in the workplace if they can't control their reproductive lives. But that kind of thinking that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was pushing for in the 1970s, the court was not there yet and the doctrine was not there yet. Well, first, I want to say, Dahlia, you know, we love getting into the weeds. I think that, of course, everyone in the country at this point is familiar with what Roe means on a practical basis for public policy. But I mean, the decisions are made out of this kind of legal reasoning and to understand how this is happening and why we do have to understand these things. And it's a better way of understanding what Roe really means and what Dobbs might mean. The narrative that you gave kind of got me thinking. I've heard from a lot of conservative legal scholars basically that Roe was determined because 
the justices found the right to privacy that they almost invented out of interpretations of various pieces of the Constitution and synthesized together. But the narrative that that you've described suggests that previous cases were the ones that really did establish that privacy right. And this has got me thinking because I was wondering if the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned in Dobbs, if that would then end our understanding of the right to privacy more broadly, and that it might have ripple effects on other areas of law. Because if the right to privacy came from Roe, you know, privacy matters for reasons beyond abortion, perhaps it becomes uncertain whether there's a right to privacy at all. But is it in fact the case that Griswold and Loving have established the right to privacy? And even if Roe is overturned, the right to privacy is still safe? That's the $40,000 question. I mean, you sort of just stuck the landing because I think that that's the question that the Dobbs draft leaves open. I think we can say uncontroversially that that same right to privacy that we've just tracked back, you know, before Griswold, it was Pierce and Myers all the way back, that becomes Griswold, that becomes Roe, that becomes Lawrence versus Texas. That's the case that strikes down the anti-sodomy laws. And that becomes Obergefell, which is the case that finds a right to marriage equality for LGBTQ Americans. And so you're exactly right. If you pull out what I sort of think of as this Jenga piece, (laughs) which is Rowan Casey, it's really hard to see not only how does Obergefell still stand as good law, but it's also really, really hard to see why those prior cases, including Griswold, uh, including even Loving, uh, don't stand. Now, here's what Justice Alito says in his draft opinion, and we should be super clear, it's a draft, what we saw that was that came out on May 3rd, it may change. But there's definitely an attempt in that opinion to say, oh, no, no, this is different. Roe is different than those other cases. And he has different ways of trying to assure us that those cases are not on the hook. But the way he says that Roe v. Wade can be struck down is he says the only liberty interests that are protected under what we've just been talking about, right, this 14th Amendment substitute due process liberty interest are the ones that are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, right? And that's from a case called Glucksburg that has to do with assisted suicide. But if you're only going to protect freedoms and liberties, as you asked, that are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, there's absolutely no way that gay marriage survives. I mean, that is certainly not deeply uh, rooted, uh, nor is contraception. And so I think that the, the loop you get into, and there's all sorts of ways to read Justice Alito trying to cabin Dobbs to just overturning Roe and Casey. It's very, very hard to see without that Jenga piece how the next challenge that comes along saying, you know, I'm, we're going to, we're the state of Texas, we're going to challenge uh, same-sex marriage, how that stands. And I guess the final thing, and this is really, really wonky, but it's important. This is why we have stare decisis. This is why we have precedent so that the court doesn't willy-nilly overturn cases. And I haven't said this yet, but it's worth saying that Roe being overturned would be the first time the Supreme Court ever overturns a precedent to take away rights as opposed to to afford more rights. And I think that when we hear the court in the same 
opinion, draft opinion for five members of the court saying Roe v. Wade is no longer good law. It was wrongly decided and it's gone, but we're going to keep Obergefell on the books. The question that it has to raise in everyone's mind is, but why? Because if you don't believe that precedent matters, then there's nothing actually firmly reassuring us that those other cases survive. And so I think it's this very, very kind of tricky argument that is trying to be offered, which is don't freak out and don't panic. They're not coming for contraception. They're not coming for same-sex marriage. How do we know that? Well, the court that just reversed Roe v. Wade is promising you that. And that just feels like a pretty flimsy reassurance in an opinion that's striking down Roe. Dolly, I want to ask you about this deeply rooted factor, because in the United States, we have this long view of history that goes back to the late 18th century. What is deeply rooted? I mean, I used to live in the UAE. The UAE was founded in 1971. The Roe decision is from 1973. (laughs) The Roe decision would seem as deeply rooted as, you know, a major country's entire history. Almost everywhere in Africa have their independence in the 1960s. Half of Europe have their independence in the 1990s. How long ago does something have to be to be deeply rooted in this way of thinking about the law? I mean, Roe has been part of American law now for half a century. That's right. And there's a fancy legal notion for that. It's called reliance interest. And it essentially means you've had 50 years of women organizing their healthcare, their employment, right? The size of their families predicated on the idea that this is the law. And by the way, when the court upheld Roe v. Wade in 1992 in the Casey decision, a huge part of it was what you just said, that it may not have been artfully written. You know, God knows poor Justice Blackman was kind of making stuff up from like spit and chewing gum and glue. But holy cow, people have come to rely on it. Uh, a couple of years ago, right before he died, then Chief Justice William Rehnquist upheld a case that required the Miranda warning. And it was the same thing. He was like, I freaking hate the Miranda warning. I don't think it's in the Constitution. But too many people watch Law and Order and they have organized their lives around, <laughs> you know, you have the right to remain silent. And so the interest you're describing, which is that people for generations have come to rely on it, is not a trivial interest. One of the things that Justice Alito does, in addition to sort of batting away the, the reliance interests, is that this idea of, you know, it has to be, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Therefore, we're going to look back to what the law was when the 14th Amendment was drafted, or we're going to look back to what the law was at the founding. At the founding, the women, the word woman doesn't appear in the Constitution. It's not there, right? And we know that if you were black or if you were female or if you were not a property owner, you had no rights. And so the question is exactly the right one, which is what do you do when you have a constitution that by design seals you in amber 200 years ago and our notions of, you know, liberty and freedom and autonomy and equality have all changed. Now, Justice Alito has an answer for you. His answer is, go ahead and amend the constitution or, you know, vote for a state legislature that protects your interests. In other words, he who spends, by the way, a lot, a lot, a lot of time in this opinion, quoting like 
17th century jurists from England who believed in like witch burnings. But his answer is, if you don't like it, take it to the ballot box. And so I think at least formally, the answer is, if you think that freedom and democracy and equality have evolved, fix it. And it's not our job to try to speculate. And I think the very last thing I would say about this, just, you know, parenthetically, is that Justice Ginsburg, when she was asked how she would change the United States Constitution, responding to exactly the thing you just said, which is all these modern constitutions really, really preserve and protect liberties and rights that we don't think about. She would always cite to the South African Constitution, right? Another modern constitution and that it explicitly protected dignity. And for her, the idea that the idea of dignity was missing from the American Constitution was like an egregious loss. And so I think that, you know, you're asking exactly the right question, which is, what do you do with a centuries old document that protects centuries old ideas about male power and white power and the equality or relative inequality of women and slaves? And I think that the formal answer that Justice Alito would give you is take it to the ballot box. Well, Dahlia, do you think that there might be something to this? I mean, you know, I hear that argument and I find it a little bit persuasive, a little bit compelling that it seems like a lot of the big moral issues in American life were determined at the courts. And that's a little bit unusual, isn't it? I mean, looking at some of these big ticket issues that we're talking about today, like abortion, same-sex marriage, looking at other similar countries, they're mostly determined at the ballot box. Uh, in Ireland, quite recently, they had a big referendum to amend the constitution to allow abortion in some cases. In Australia, they had a big referendum about same-sex marriage rather recently. In Germany, they had uh, a, a vote inside the parliament about same-sex marriage about 2015. And a lot of these cases, they established those protections a little bit after we did in the United States. But still, perhaps there's been a little bit more idea of democratic buy-in into establishing those principles. I mean, you can see in some cases how this was a flawed model, like in Switzerland, where they just kept on asking all the male voters, do you want to allow women to vote? And they didn't say yes until the 80s. At the same time, I mean, in a democratic system, do we really want so many of our, you know, the key principles of law just being determined in the courts by a small handful of people? I mean, I think for sure you are descriptively right that the United States is unique in that it is an almost perfect juristocracy at this point, that there are no other analogous Supreme Courts anywhere in, you know, sort of even constitutional democracies where nine unelected people serve for life and they can decide which cases they're going to take. There's no sort of mandatory jurisdiction. They can just strike down an act of Congress that, you know, like the Voting Rights Act, which was, you know, reauthorized by broad bipartisan margins. So I think you are descriptively right that we are in a moment where nine unelected people have vast, vast, vast powers over all of these hot button issues. We can throw guns into the mix. The court's about to hand down a massive gun case, church, state, separation, and religious context, and the entirety of, you know, the, the administrative state. All of that is coming down in the next couple of weeks at the court. So you are right. The court is absolutely all over everything in the United States. And in a way, it looks as though it's 
an effort to have judicial humility, right? When Justice Alito says, hey, the court decides too many things, let's give this back to the voters. Now, of course, that's tough to reconcile with a court that's about to give massive, massive expansion in gun rights, right? So it doesn't, it's not necessarily a consistent humility. There's a lot of things that the court is willing to decide. But I think the big structural answer, and this goes to something we should probably talk about, which is in both the guns context and the abortion context, it is very hard for Americans who are quite shocked, I think, both by um, how abortion and, and guns are going to get decided this term, how it's possible that you can have 70% of Americans that basically su- support the notion that Roe, you know, modified Roe should still be constitutional protection and the same numbers or higher saying we need to have meaningful gun safety laws. And I think it's hard to explain to people why it is that by huge margins, these are unpopular decisions, and yet nothing can be done. And so that gets to me to the big wonky structural answer to your question, which kind of goes to the only letting, you know, men vote about whether women can have the franchise, which is I think you can't think about these problems without seeing how enmeshed they are with sort of anti-democratic institutions generally. And so you can talk about the Electoral College, right? You can talk about a Senate that is malapportioned to the point that California has two senators and so does North Dakota. You can talk about the filibuster, which is the reason that, you know, massively popular voting rights legislation didn't get taken up or why gun legislation won't get taken up. Every one of those structures comes from founding ideas about who has power. And I think that you can't tell people, just go to the ballot box and fix it, if you are the same court that just a year ago further constricted the right to vote in the Brnovich case, and that struck down Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County case. And so I think it's just really important to see that the court cannot simultaneously be saying, take this up by way of the engines of democracy, while it is persistently blessing gerrymandering, persistently blessing vote suppression, persistently blessing state efforts to constrict the vote. And so even though that sounds, again, extremely wonky, I think the best way I can think of it, and I just interviewed former Attorney General Eric Holder and asked him the same question you asked me, which is why can't this just get fixed democratically? And his answer, and he was talking in the context of the gun problem, where massive, massive majorities want reform that does not seem to pass. And his answer is it's a mistake to think of this as a gun problem. This is fundamentally a democracy problem. And it cannot truly, I think, be said, if you don't like it, get out and vote, unless you're really willing to talk about malapportioned Senate, about gerrymandering, about vote suppression, and about all the ways in which getting out and fixing it through the Democratic branches becomes harder every day. Yeah, it's funny uh, saying, you know, California has two senators and North Dakota has two. Adele, you can go even a bit broader and say, California has two senators and Dakota has four. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right, right. Now that we're kind of talking explicitly about politics, I'm wondering how we should, as Americans who maybe aren't lawyers or legal experts like yourself, 
understand the court more abstractly. So when we were brought up in school, grade school, we, we think of these justices and these jurists who are all in black robes. They're really smart and intelligent, and they are focused on interpreting the letter of the law. But with these larger cases, like you just mentioned, that don't really seem to make sense, like the way that the court might rule on abortion and guns kind of seeming in contradiction of each other, how much do the justices on the court use legal reasoning just to reinforce partisan ideology? Is this just now a partisan exercise or is this actually still some exalted legal body? So you're killing me, Justin, because it's the kind of existential question that plagues legal reporters. It's the thing that, you know, why we all have mouth guards now, right? Because we're grinding our teeth. And I think that the short, not flippant answer is it's both, right? That the court is both. It is by design, a perfectly political branch, right? It is comprised of people chosen by a political president, and it is ratified by a political Senate. To think that it is not and has not been since the founding a political branch is, I mean, I get the fairy tale. You know, this is Justice Breyer keeps writing books about how, oh, it's different. You know, they really are oracles. They're just brains in vat. There's nothing partisan going on here. And it's very sweet. And, you know, I sort of feel like I put that in my bucket with the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy, right? Like we want to believe that it is perfectly oracular and nonpartisan. And that is not true. And it's never been true. So why do I say it's also true? It's also true because it is the aspiration it is the point. And the reason that at the founding, justices were seated for life, and they cannot be removed unless it is by way of impeachment. And as you know, that's high crimes and misdemeanors. They sit sit for life because the idea was to insulate them from politics. The idea was we wanted them to be able to do hard, even unpopular things, right? That's how you get Brown v. Board. <laughs> That's how you get Loving versus Virginia. So I think that we have to sit in the incredible, exquisite, uncomfortable tension that the court is both a completely partisan political branch and always has been. And also that the court is supposed to be doing something that transcends just raw bare knuckle politics. And that is justice. And it's very, very hard, particularly I can say as somebody who sits in that chamber and asks myself the same question you do. And who, by the way, like puts in lines in every article, you know, appointed by Barack Obama, you know, appointed by George Bush. You can't be naive about the fact that the court is political, but you also, I think, can try to hold the court to the standard that what they do transcends and is much, much loftier than just politics. And I think it's very, very hard at a moment like this. And I guess we should just say, you know, as we're taping, this leak has roiled the court. There are justices whose clerks are not speaking to each other. The clerks have been now asked to turn over their phones to figure out, you know, who the source of the leak is. The level of mistrust at the Supreme Court is unlike anything I have ever seen in two decades. So you have a sense that the wheels are coming off at the institution. And that is partly because I think that the justices live in this same uncomfortable tension that you and I live in, right? That they want this illusion that they are oracles, that it's not political. And yet they keep doing these really, really partisan <laughs> political things and then calling each other out for it. And so I guess maybe the short answer is, you know, Justice Sotomayor, 
at the Dobbs argument accused the majority when it became clear that there were going to be five, maybe six votes to overturn Roe, talked about the stench of politics and partisanship. And that's like fighting words for a justice. They don't talk that way. But I think that what she was trying to say is that we all live inside this fairy tale and illusion because the alternative is it's just ugly politics. And once that stench that it's just ugly politics, that this is just another branch of government that dukes it out, you know, based on power, then you can't get that back. You can't earn back that public trust. And that's the thing I think that is most worrying, both about the leak and about the sort of very, very, very ugly rhetoric we're hearing out of the court right now, is that when the public loses confidence in the courts, the way you're describing, that takes decades to earn back. I have another uncomfortable question related to the the uncomfortable situation that a lot of justices and folks like yourself and me, when we think about the court, find ourselves in. And this is really uncomfortable for liberals. And it's related to gun rights, abortion, these major cases that we're discussing right now. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a liberal lion. She was a pop culture icon. She really represents to a lot of people freedom and the great advancements that our country have had in a wide variety of areas. But considering that justices do have to live in political reality and considering that progressives and even a lot of liberals during President Obama's time in office were pressuring RBG to retire and she didn't. She refused to retire. And many people blame her in large part for this 6-3 court. So how much blame does she actually have for just wanting to take this lifetime appointment literally instead of taking into account the political realities, things that people in politics were telling her, and these stark warnings that if uh, she doesn't retire, that we could end up with a 6-3 court that rolls back a bunch of rights for 300 million Americans? It's the right question, and I'm asked it a lot. In some sense, it dovetails exactly with where we started, which is why couldn't Roe v. Wade have been planted in better ground? Like maybe we wouldn't be here if Justice Blackman was able to predict the future, right? And I think we wouldn't be here as liberals if Justice Ginsburg, who thought that she could hang on until, you know, Hillary Clinton would have a chance to replace her just made a miscalculation. And I, and I don't say that to defend the miscalculation. And I have theories, including things she has actually said to me and to other people about why she didn't feel comfortable being pushed out when she was being expressly pressured. But I'm also just not sure that relitigating those decisions now is a super, super useful, you know, way to, to move forward. And I, and I do think that there is a tendency for progressives to say, and listen, I'm the person who says unerringly in response to the Ruth Bader Ginsburg question, if in 2016, when, you know, going into Senate races with one vacancy on the court, there was Antonin Scalia's seat that had been held open and three octogenarians on the court, that folks on the Dem side running for Senate didn't say one word about the court, whereas you had Ted Cruz and John McCain all running for election saying, oh, let's be clear, if Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, we will hold that seat open for eight more years. There will be 
eight people on the court, we are never filling that seat. And so I think in some sense, your question goes to this larger asymmetry. For very many decades now, conservatives have timed retirements much more carefully and strategically than liberals have on the court. And they're very careful, as Justice Kennedy was, uh, to step down so that they're replaced by someone uh, of the same views. And I think that asymmetry really goes through the entire system. It's just that I think the conservative legal movement has been effective and focused for decades on, you know, prioritizing the courts. And I think that progressives for decades have kind of hit snooze and thought, you know, we were still in the Warren court era. And so I think Justice Ginsburg was very much a part of that asymmetry, not just in terms of her own decisions to stay on. And she did feel strongly, by the way, that she uh, would not be replaced by somebody like her. She would have been replaced by someone more centrist. And that bothered her. But I think just more urgently, she kind of was making a version of the argument I made in response to John on the question of why not just duke this out in the electoral branches. Her argument was, dude, if you care about the court, show up and vote. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Don't like take it out on me. I'm a little 83 year old lady. Show up and vote. And if you vote and you get the Senate and you get the presidency, then I'm out. So I think in a weird way, whether you find it bloodless or egomaniacal or just short-sighted, Justice Ginsburg's answer is a version of my answer to John, which is, this is a democracy problem. It's not a Ruth Bader Ginsburg problem. In some sense, I think progressives just failed to put the court, not even the top five interests in 2016, but I would say in the top 15. Yeah. And I'm a Democrat now, but my history is I worked for a staunch Catholic conservative on Capitol Hill for the Tea Party. And then for the RNC, I was doing national messaging on the 2016 campaign. And to your point, Democrats don't really, I think the Democrat voters don't really prioritize or really care or understand about the court like conservatives do, because in in politics, you hear about abortion and how that energizes conservatives. And there's polls, 30% of Republican voters are single issue abortion issue uh, voters. Only 15% of Democrats are. But abortion is just another word for the court, at least from the Republican perspective, right? They just wanted to put their justices on the court to overturn that. Before we go to John for a question, I just want to add that I do think this is a very important question because regardless of whether it's an issue with democracy or justices, we have to live in reality and these folks are appointed for life. So if we don't understand how we got here, even if we don't like the answer to how we got here, I think it's very important that we look at this honestly, because it will paint the decisions of future justices like Stephen Breyer, who ultimately retired, because it's kind of silly if the Republicans are playing the game by the rules that are written and they're doing really well for Democrats just to not look at the rules of the game and keep making the same mistakes. So I just want to say, I think it's really vital that um, the justices do pay attention to this and, and live in reality. I think I would just re-up what you just said, which is that the polling showed in 2016 that by almost a two-to-one margin, people who prioritized the court and abortion and gay marriage broke for Donald Trump. And that was partly because, as you said, there was just a singular focused messaging around that. Donald Trump was the first candidate who said, I am going to only appoint 
pro-life people to the court. And by the way, here's my list, (laughs) which he shared with us. So it wasn't as though any of this was like subtext. This was text. This was explicitly promised and held out. And I think that there is kind of no point in progressives saying, well, that's not fair because it's exactly was the play and it was executed perfectly. Now, I think we could have a side conversation about whether holding that Scalia seat open for almost a year was of a piece with what you're describing, because I think that was Norm's violation that we had never seen before. And the sort of coda to that is seating Amy Coney Barrett when voting had already started in the 2020 election, I think is another huge Norm's violation. And in fact, a violation of the norm that said, We couldn't seat Merrick Garland in a presidential election year. So I think there's two things going on. Democrats and progressives who are surprised by what's happening in Dobbs or what's happening in Bruin, the guns case, or what's happening in some of these agency law cases and administrative law cases shouldn't be surprised. I think they just weren't paying attention. It's kind of funny thinking about the way that Trump approached all this stuff and that list that he produced. And it seems to me like this was really part of a handshake deal between Trump and the conservatives because Trump's not really conservative. He almost never uses the word conservative. If you hear him speak, he doesn't care about these kinds of issues at all, clearly. But he made a kind of bargain with the conservative world that he would give them absolute deferences on the matters of judicial appointments and essentially just rubber stamp them. So when people talk about the Trump judges and the Trump justices, it's it seems almost like a misnomer because perhaps they're better described as McConnell judges, McConnell justices, or even Don McGahn, the uh, White House counsel who worked with McConnell so closely on these appointments. There may be Don McGahn judges and Don McGahn justices and Trump, it came across his desk and he rubber stamped them and, and carried on. But it seems like he was almost uh, just a proxy and not really the person who was behind appointing or selecting any of these people, right? Yeah, I mean, that's it's such a good insight. And it's really ironic that when you look at, for instance, the Trump administration's win-loss record in front of the courts, it was catastrophically terrible. Like, there's a reason that we don't have a wall. And there's a reason that the family separation policy didn't. I mean, most of the things, the Muslim ban, most of the stuff that Trump got to do was either overtly reversed in the courts or chipped away to the point that they're almost meaningless. But the one huge success is that we all now live under the dead hand of, you know, the Trump appointments, which were just numerically unprecedented. He absolutely prioritized it. But as you said, he farmed it out. He contracted out entirely to Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and people who were actually really good at this. And so the, the irony that you're, you're pointing up is just so interesting because in a lot of ways, the Trump, the four years of the Trump era didn't do the kinds of legal damage that we were terrified of because it, a lot of those initiatives were sort of sloppy back of the napkin first drafts that were batted down by the court. But the irony is that the judges themselves, I mean, not only are the numbers staggering, but some of them are in their 30s and 40s. They're going to you know, be in charge when our grandchildren are trying to make a change at the polls. And so I think it is exactly the paradox you're pointing out, which is that an administration that kind of did law really kind of shabbily did judges really, really well. And that is, you know, I think the thing that we when we see what the Fifth Circuit is doing, you know, some of the federal appeals courts that have flipped. I think, again, 
we have some sense that because progressives and Democrats didn't focus on it, it wasn't happening. But holy hell, it was happening and it was and we're going to, you know, really, really live with the consequences for a long time. Yeah, I think that it's funny talking about the back of a napkin. I think that the uh, visa ban was literally written on a back of a napkin by Steve Bannon, right? The parts of the administration that were staffed by these Federalist Society protégés, you know, the White House Counsel's Office, we hear about how they were at internal war with the other elements of the administration all the time. So much that Pat Cipollone, the the last White House Counsel, is going to be probably testifying uh, with records and evidence of misconduct uh, around January 6th at the public January 6th hearings. But this whole conversation about how organized the conservative legal movement has become, I think brings us to a really interesting question about the origins of Roe. We know that the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement have become so developed and that they've um, built these pipelines where they can have ideological litmus tests for the candidates uh, of judges that are uh, appointed. This is partly going back to Roe, but also the disappointment that they had with Reagan's Supreme Court appointees, uh, O'Connor and Kennedy, and then Bush, uh, especially picking Souter from me and Justin, our home state of New Hampshire. Going back to Roe, we can see that it was written by Harry Blackman, who was a Republican appointed justice. And I don't know if this is exactly correct, Dahlia, but I think that five of the seven justices who signed on to the majority opinion in Roe were Republican appointees, and that's enough for a majority. So you can say that it was 100% the Republican Party that did produce Roe versus Wade. They had five judges who signed on to it. There's the majority right there, including the author. And we've already been talking about how the conservative movement have developed this structure around judicial appointees. But can we go back to 1973? Was abortion even a partisan issue in the same way? I mean, how did the Republican Party's legal world think about abortion at that time? It's really a good question. And I would commend to folks, Elise Hogue had a really good book that came out with some of the history of this last year. And there's been other really, really good reporting. And your question is exactly on the nose because it is actually not true that the conservative legal movement at the time was wildly opposed to Roe. And even I would say the religious entities that eventually organized in opposition and became kind of the moral majority. And then that becomes the spine of the legal movement you're describing now. None of those entities are organized at the time as being particularly anti-abortion or really all that interested in abortion. When Roe initially came down, it wasn't nearly as controversial as we like to think it was today. And the sort of grim answer that some of the legal historians have, have pointed me to is that conservative religious legal movement that was really faltering in its fight against desegregation, right? What they were upset about was desegregation and the implications for desegregation, by the way, in religious schools. That was just a really bad losing issue for them. They didn't look good. And they very, very, very cannily moved from fighting against something that the public thought was intolerable, which is co-education and, and sort of race blindness in education, to very, very cannily grabbing onto Roe as a much, much more attractive organizing principle. And the moral majority, it really, in some sense, again, this is so well-organized, so focused, 
then kind of gloms onto Roe and abortion as an issue because it really does, I think, become salient and does become something that you can sort of preach from the pulpit. And so I think in a way, the history around this is, you know, as is the case, so many things in the United States, it starts in race. It starts in race and only becomes about reproductive rights after. And I think maybe the other thing that we could pull on from your question that's really complicated is that this becomes a religious issue and that we forget that the the churches were not all arrayed against Justice Blackman, right? Like we remember the impeach Earl Warren. That was about desegregation. There wasn't a backlash. It took a long time for the backlash against Roe to build. And I think that it became a really salient faith-based issue. And maybe I'll just land by saying that you can't read the Dobbs opinion as it's currently constituted the draft without seeing those kind of threads of religion. When does life begin? You can use the lowest possible scrutiny called rational basis review to test whether a state thinks that life begins at conception. Those are not, and Justice Sotomayor tried to make these arguments in the, in the Dobbs uh, oral argument, but those are principally theological views and they've been really seized upon theologically. But I think one of the questions you're asking is how did this become so very salient when it wasn't at the time? And I think that the answer is you could make a really good theological case that life begins at conception and that's everywhere in in the Dobbs opinion. And it was very hard to make a theological case that black and white children could not learn together. I think that we're kind of moving forward in the timeline a little bit because we're talking about how the different ways of legal thinking did evolve and how we got from Roe to Dobbs. And there is a stop along the way. And it also has to do with, you know, we're just talking about the disappointment that many in the conservative world had with these 1980s, 1990s GOP appointed justices being Kennedy and O'Connor and Souter. This really brings us to that Casey decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I think, is it 1996? 1992. 1992. Okay. So this was at the end of the George H.W. Bush presidency. We hear in the analyses and the reporting on the Dobbs opinion that it will not only overturn Roe v. Wade, but it will also overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So for the public to understand why that also matters, can you tell us, Dahlia, about what are the distinct components of Casey that make it important in addition to Roe? Well, well, Casey is kind of the test case for what you said initially, which is when Casey was being decided, it was absolutely certain that there were now enough Republican appointees on the court that this was going to be the end of Roe. And the amazing thing about Casey in some sense is that out of the blue, you get David Souter, Sandra Day O'Connor, and Anthony Kennedy, all Republican appointees, joining together in this very, very strange plurality opinion to uphold Roe. And people were shocked because, as you said, this was the promise, right? At this point, we're only appointing people who are pro-life. And yet, when you know the rubber hits the road in Casey, the court does the opposite and they uphold it. And the, the big structural difference is that in Roe, 
And and again, you know, we, we started talking about this, but it's worth saying, you know, when, when Harry Blackman writes Roe, he uses the word doctor more times than he uses the word women. I mean, he was really, he had worked with the Mayo Clinic. He wrote from the perspective of the right of a doctor and a woman. By the time you get to, to Casey in 1992, there's now, uh, as I said, much more sophisticated understanding of the equal protection argument that, you know, women can't participate fully in the workplace if they can't control their rep- reproductive schedules. So that's starting to leach in. But what the, the Casey court can't abide is this three trimester system that Roe had set up. And Roe had sort of said, look, we're going to go three months, three months, three months, essentially. And for those first three months, when before viability, largely thumb on the scale for women and their doctors to terminate the second trimester, you know, there's now a sort of a, a balancing between the interest of the mother and the interest of the fetus. And in the third trimester, you know, the state now has a meaningful interest in preserving life. And just as I describe that to you, like it's, it's hinky, right? Like it's, 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 it, it sounds like it's kind of trying to do a precise mathematical formula. It was awkward. It was scientifically suspect. Everybody hated the trimesters. And so what Casey essentially does is they jettison the three trimesters and they just essentially say, we are going to say that there is this viability line. And after viability, the states have far, far, far more interest and permission to regulate abortion. And the the language of Casey becomes that the state can't put, quote unquote, an undue burden, whatever that means. It's something that Sandra Day O'Connor like cooked up somewhere. But you can't put an undue burden on a pregnant person seeking an abortion. But that viability line currently is at about 24 weeks. And what was kind of shocking about the Mississippi law is that they simply passed, and this was of a piece with a bunch of states that were passing, you know, heartbeat laws or laws that set viability, you know, that, that, that didn't care what scientific viability was. The Mississippi law simply said 15 weeks. And so I guess the best way to explain what Casey did is Casey tried to set a marker that before this time, Thumb on the scale for the, the, the mom's, you know, interests, those liberty interests we talked about at the beginning. After viability, thumb on the scale that the state has meaningful interests. And what Mississippi did, and now we're seeing in other st- states that are passing, you know, again, similar before Dobbs comes down even, that are passing 15 week bans and 12 week bans and eight week bans is that they've essentially nullified the holding in Casey even before before Dobbs comes down. They're simply saying, we've determined that the state has an interest in regulating at eight weeks or six weeks. I think the Missouri law is at conception. And so I think that the best other way to think about Casey is we always forget because we say, oh, Casey was a, you know, the case that, that upheld Roe v. Wade. But actually, Casey was fine upholding a bunch of Pennsylvania laws that actually restricted abortion rights. The one that they didn't like was the spousal notification law that Pennsylvania had where your, your, your partner had a veto and Justice O'Connor was worried that that would lead to abuse and all sorts of violence towards women. That was the only one they struck down. And so even though we like to say that Casey expanded Roe v. Wade, it actually contracted it. And in many ways, it set the stage for 
these informed consent laws that we saw in all the years after where, you know, clinics had to widen their hallways or, you know, install HVAC systems or have scripts warning of suicidal ideation. All of that kind of was the progeny of Casey that said that states could regulate quite, quite strictly in some cases, but that viability was always the marker. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Dahlia Lithwick and Slate and to you for being here. To hear more past conversations or sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Wednesday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.